give us a greater grace and ability to see you clearly and to draw near to you. And we just ask in that process that you would make us look more like you, that you would fill us with more of you, with more of your spirit. Make us more aware of your presence in our life and your presence in this room right now. And as we learn of you, may it cause our hearts to seek after you more, to hunger for you more, to thirst for you more, to live for you more, and to walk in step with you. We just ask that you would meet us in a special way tonight. We thank you in advance in Jesus' name. So since we got a smaller crew, let's just circle up. And so if you guys want to move your chairs. So we are going to talk about the Holy Spirit tonight and want to focus on the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I think that the Holy Spirit can be probably one of the most foggy, fuzzy notions for us to get our mind around sometimes. And it's hard to seek after more of the Holy Spirit if you don't really know what you're seeking for, right? Like, are we looking for an experience? Am I looking for a special gift to come into my life? What does it mean to sit when we're praying something like, come Holy Spirit, what are we actually asking? So my hope is that while I give you aspects biblically revealed of what the Holy Spirit does when he comes on the scene, it'll help you both recognize how the Holy Spirit's been at work in your lives. It'll help you realize when we're praying for revival on campus and outpouring of God's spirit, what that would look like on a large scale. So all of these things, if you're a born again believer, I want to settle on the front end, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you right? But I think we can all agree that there's always more to go after in God. And everything that I'm about to say has an individual correlation where it's like, oh, this could be applied to my own individual life. But when God really begins to move in the earth, these things can happen on a large scale, right? And so our desire is more of this in my life is the starting point, but also God do it in the earth, right? And so the cry from God, change me to God, change my generation is not that far away because it's saying what you're doing in me, what you've done in me, I want to see it done on a much larger scale. So first we have to establish in our thinking is that the Holy Spirit is a person and not a force, okay? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is a person. He is a he, not an it. That's right. Okay, that's really important. He is a he, not an it. He is given names such as the comforter, the advocate, the paraclete, which is the helper, the come along. He can be grieved, so he has emotions, he has feelings, he reveals the mind of God to us. Um, he's gonna, he speaks to us in language. So he has a will, he has desire. The Holy Spirit is a person, not an it, not a force. Okay, it's really important to establish on the front end. He's one with the Father and the Son, yet he is distinct in his person. So a misconception about the Trinity is that we think one person, they are one in their essence and one in their nature. But if I think the father, like, okay, this is a good example. I'm a dad, but I'm also a son in a different context. And I'm also a friend in another context, right? And it's just like hats I can take off. If I'm relating to my mom, I'm her son. So, but then when I get home and I relate to my son, Ezra, my daughter, Olive, I put a different hat on, I relate to them as dad, and then when I'm with Regan, I put a different hat on, and now I'm I'm his friend, right? Some people conceive of God that way. That's called modalism. It's actually a heresy. That's bad theology. God does not shapeshift, because then it totally muddles up moments like the baptism of Jesus, where there's a voice speaking from heaven, the incarnate Son of God is on earth, and the Holy Spirit's descending on him, Right. right? But we're also not believing in three gods. We don't believe we're not tritheistic. That would make us polytheistic, saying that Father is one God and the Son's one God. And the Holy Spirit is one God. It's one God, one in their essence, one in their nature, three in their distinct persons. And that's revealed through the gospel, through the incarnation. It's on the pages of the Old Testament, but it's a little bit more cloudy. It's harder to see. But now with the New Testament revelation, we can look back. And what that means and why that's so important is because from forever, God has been in relationship with himself. That's right. He is a perfect community of love within himself. His being is relational. But he's one being. He's not three gods. You can't divide his essence. He's one God, which also is good news that from forever, the father has been a father. Yeah. He's always had a father's heart. So now it's not something he's ever added to his person. Like Jesus came into the earth and now God's like, oh, I have to figure out what it means to be a father. 
Like, no, God the Father has always been the Father. And Christ the Son has always been relating to him in a love relationship as the Son. And the Spirit has been proceeding from the Father and from the Son. Yes. Okay, does this make sense? Yes. So this is hopefully get more clear as we go on tonight. This is really important. That can sound like, oh, man, it's kind of clunky, whatever. It is so important. And the gospel is thoroughly Trinitarian from beginning to end. The Father sends the Son. The Son is the one who comes, and the Holy Spirit is the one who makes our actual union with Jesus real. Okay, So all three members of the Trinity are involved in the gospel. But I want to focus, as I said tonight, on the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that with greater clarity and earnestness, we can actually pray, come Holy Spirit, and know what we're praying for. So 10 things that the Holy Spirit does. This is not a conclusive list, uh, but 10 things just to help us get the Holy Spirit in focus Number one would be that the Holy Spirit makes people aware of the reality of God. Another word for that would be presence. The Holy Spirit makes the presence of God real to people. And not just a foggy, abstract sense of God, but God, not only that God is there, but I love what J.R. Packer says, but that he's here. Okay? Yeah. The sense that God is real. There is an otherness. There is something bigger than me, something outside of me. There is a creator. God is real. And he's not just out there. He's in our midst. The Holy Spirit's job is to make the reality of God. And that sometimes can be experienced as the peace of God. Sometimes it's the joy of God that people experience. Sometimes it's the holiness of God that we experience in different environments. But it's this sense that there is an other being and he's in our midst. Okay. Sometimes this happens in through shock in people's lives. A loved one dies And all of a sudden you become aware of these big concepts like life and death. And that tragedy can actually lead you to an exploration for God. And God in his province can use the Holy Spirit to draw you to himself. Sometimes it's awe. You're standing under a night sky. You look up and it's like the Holy Spirit's moving on your heart. And the same one, the active agent in creation, because the Holy Spirit played a role in creation, is making you aware, wow, there's something outside of myself. That's the Holy Spirit's action. It happens in worship. God inhabits the praise of his people. If you've ever been in an environment where people are worshiping and praising, and you're like, I never thought any of this stuff was real, but all of a sudden my heart is feeling something it's never felt before. So Holy Spirit making you aware of the presence of God. Number two is that the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin. Number two, if you're highlighting words in this, number two is that the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin. When you, as an unholy, unclean, person get in the presence of an all-holy perfect being you become aware of your own foulness and it's this is kind of a broken analogy but i want you to imagine that you've been playing basketball with your boys or if you're with your girls you're hanging out doing whatever and it's like this weather it's muggy it's 90 degrees outside and you are sweating profusely you smell disgusting no amount of axe body spray is going to help you out and there's a girl that you've only casually been getting to know but you're really interested and she texts you and is like, hey, where are you doing? Where are you at? Oh, I'm only like five minutes down the road. Do you want to grab dinner real quick? And you do want to hang out. And you didn't realize how musty you were. And you didn't realize how bad you smelled when you were with a bunch of other guys who smelled just like you. But then you get in the car with her and she's just gone to Sam's Auto Wash and her car is clean and she's got perfume on. And all of a sudden you are profoundly aware of, I want to be clean. I hate how I smell right now. I hate how I feel. I didn't care when I was just hanging with my boys. But now what was familiar to me a second ago, I want off of me. I want this stench off of me. I want to be clean. Now, amplify that times a billion, trillion, whatever, to the infinite amount of zeros. When you get in the presence of holy God, the realization is clean, unclean, perfect, imperfect, holy, unholy. I want to be clean. This is Isaiah, already a prophet, six chapters into the book of Isaiah. says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He's in the presence. It's not just what he saw. It's what he felt. And he fell on his face. He says, woe is me. Not woe are the people of Israel. Woe is me, the mouthpiece of God, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I'm from a people of unclean lips. And his desire is, God, make me clean. Right? This is what happens. People get in the presence of God. And our desire is, I want to be clean. This is what happens in revival which takes us to number two is, uh, or sorry, number three, the Holy Spirit works repentance in our hearts. Conviction is the realization of I'm a sinner and I need to get right before God. The deeper the conviction, the deeper the work of repentance, which is why in revival, when God comes near, revival is a great drawing near of God. It's God comes down. God like steps his feet upon the earth and his presence, which is always active in some sense, becomes like a downpour. And all of a sudden people become profoundly real that God is real, God is here, And I am unclean and I need to get clean. And the depth of repentance is 
I want to fully change. I don't just want to say sorry and keep going on living the way that I was. I want to change. And why? Because I want to be in right relationship with you. And aside from turning away from my sin and turning towards you, I'm not going to be in right relationship with you. Okay? So false religion gets thrown out because all of a sudden we realize. And if you realize this is actually what happens when somebody comes to the Lord. This is not just seasons of revival. I'm talking about the process of regeneration. How does somebody go from in the dark, blinded to the reality of God, their need for Jesus, apathetic to all things spiritual, to coming into a right relationship with Jesus? They first become aware that God is real. There's someone outside of themselves that they're accountable to. They realize that they're a sinner. They're in need of salvation. And then they need to repent. They need to turn from those things that they were once doing so they can enter God's kingdom. So number four would be that the Holy Spirit draws our heart to Christ in faith. So after repentance is the response of faith. Faith in the person of Jesus, all that he is as the son of God, as the savior of the world, as king, as rightful Lord, as the one who's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And also the work of Christ as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the one who can take away our uncleanness, the one who can make us right. And when you've realized that depth of conviction and your need to repent before a holy God, the work of Jesus is that much more precious to you. All of a sudden, the same Sunday school story that you've heard about a man dying on a tree is the best news you've ever heard. That God wants to be in relationship with you after you felt the sting of conviction right? When you think you're mostly fine and I haven't done anything that bad, then all of a sudden you, it's like the cross is kind of meaningless to you. But when you realize the depth of your need before a holy God, all of a sudden the cross becomes the sweetest news you've ever heard. That God the Son would become a man to bear your guilt and your shame so that you could be restored to God. The Holy Spirit, I love what J.R. Packer says, is like the hidden floodlight that sheds light on Jesus so that your soul can see the magnificent beauty of Jesus. It's like for all the times of opening their eyes, like this, the magnificence of the sun, which we're not supposed to stare at. If you're blind, you can stare at the sun all day and not see that it's shining. What the Holy Spirit does to our eyes is he opens our eyes to see the beauty and the magnificence of who Jesus is. And he makes him a sweet savor to our heart. Without the Holy Spirit, you won't. It will be just yet another story, just yet another option. But the Holy Spirit makes the gospel a reality to you and it makes it sweet. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves to magnify Jesus. What's the Holy Spirit's favorite subject? Jesus. He loves to shine his light on Jesus. So the Holy Spirit draws our hearts out to faith, uh, or sorry, draws our hearts out to Christ in faith. Uh, and again, that's important because when I said the Holy Spirit makes the reality of God or the otherness of God real to our hearts, it's not just a broad general sense of there's somebody out there. It's a specific and saving faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, So some type of stirring that a guy in the Himalayas feels that leads him to Krishna is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Some type of sensation somebody feels when they walk into a mosque that doesn't lead them into saving faith in Jesus Christ is not the work of the Holy Spirit. The type of faith that the Holy Spirit works in the human heart is a faith that culminates in Jesus Christ and nothing less than that. That is the true measure of, is it the Holy Spirit? Did it lead to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Okay. Uh, Acts 16, 14. I can go back and hit scripture references. I'm kind of flying through this. But Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to receive Paul's message. It's that the heart was closed. The heart didn't care. It was hard the heart opened up to receive the gospel. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. Number five, the Holy Spirit works regeneration in us. This is new birth. This is union with Christ. Uh, You know, sometimes the scriptures refer to Christ is in you. Sometimes it says you are in Christ. Love what Michael Green, an evangelist says, which is it? He said, it'd be a little bit like asking, is my left hand in my right or is my right hand in my left? And he goes, it's both. It's a physical union where when you put saving faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and makes real what Jesus did for you is that you get grafted into Jesus and Jesus comes and takes residence inside of you. He makes regeneration real to us. Jesus said nobody can see the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. What that meant is that unless the spirit comes and dwells inside, unless there's been a birth again. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes that real and effective. A biblical word for that would be regeneration. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Two of the most powerful words in the Bible, in Christ. 
I pray often, several times a week, God, to make everything that it means to be in Christ explode on the inside of me because I've only scratched the surface of what it actually means to be joined to Christ. When they're talking about you've been seated with Christ in heavenly places, we're like, what on earth does that mean? It means that my real inheritance, my real identity is already seated in heaven with Jesus. doesn't mean I'm physically on earth. It's not talking about like I have some spiritual quote. No, I'm joined with Jesus, the one seated at the right hand of the Father. If I had any idea what that meant, it would change everything in my life. What does it mean to be in Christ? You can be loved by God the Father the same way he loves Jesus, which is absolutely mind-boggling, John 17, 23, because you're in Christ. So when the Father looks at you, he looks at you through the lens of Jesus. That's because the Holy Spirit works regeneration. Number six, the Holy Spirit seals us assures us and bears witness with our spirits of all that is true of our relationship with God. He's a seal. It's called the seal of uh, redemption. It means that on the day that Jesus shows up, it's like, I'm sealed. It's not based on my performance. I'm sealed for that day, the day of redemption. Man, I'm sealed with adoption. It's like, not just the paperwork has been signed. When God looks at me, there's a stamp on me that says, man, he belongs to God. He is now God's child and he can cry out, Abba, Father, and relate to God, the eternal Father, with the same language of intimacy that Jesus himself has used throughout all of eternity. The Holy Spirit seals you for that. He gives you that deep assurance that you, when you're like, man, I'm having a bad day and I don't really know. It's the Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children, that we've been forgiven, that what's taken place, that what you prayed at that summer camp is real, what no amount of arguing can do. The Holy Spirit has come to bear witness inside of us that all of that is true, that the things that you read about in Scripture, the way that God loves you, that's actual, that it's real. That's not just a fantasy. That's not just a fake religion. The Holy Spirit assures us, seals us, and bears witness. Number seven, the Holy Spirit uh, sanctifies us. So at the moment of salvation, you are justified. You are legally set right with God based on the perfect work of Jesus. But how many of you became perfect, sinless, uh, Christ-like character individuals on the day that you said yes to Jesus. Okay, perfect. Nobody, right? I've, n I've yet to meet somebody. Well, actually, I think I met one guy who thought that was the case, but that's dealing in unreality. The reality is that, and what the scriptures talk about, Galatians, other places I could reference, is that it is a battle, a tooth and nail battle, and we should have the victory the majority of the time because of his spirit living in us between the flesh and the spirit. And I'm not talking about our bodies. I'm talking about that carnal, sinful, selfish-oriented nature that wants to rule over our lives, that we have to, by following Jesus' commands and the power that he supplies through the Spirit, be changed from one glory to another into the likeness of Jesus. That's a progressive work that will not be finished until we stand face-to-face -face with Jesus and we strip off these bodies of death and we put on resurrected glory. But to know that God has given his Spirit to work that in us, one, even as I'm talking about this, we're saying, God, Holy Spirit, come. We have to ask ourselves, is there a desire in me to be sanctified? Right. Like, am I mostly okay with my present level of being set apart to God? Or am I saying, God, create in me the purest heart. I love Robert Murray McShion, who's a famous Scottish preacher, used to say, God, as possible as it is for a man to be holy, make me that holy. As a, however possible it is for a man to be holy, would you make me that level of holy? Is that the cry of your heart? You maybe have never said those words before, but if you're in touch with the Holy Spirit, is there a desire? God, scrape my heart of every impure and carnal motive. God, rid me of pride. God, th that desire to, for my own glory. God, that desire where I ask questions like how far is too far, that is not a spirit-inspired question. The question is Misty Edwards saying, God, how far would you let me go? How abandoned would you let me live for your glory? That's the cry of sanctification. The Holy Spirit works that inside of us. If that's not in you right now, I'm not saying you don't have the Holy Spirit, but I'm trying to awaken in you what's normal for a spirit-filled person. It's good, bro. And when you start seeking more of the Spirit of God, what's probably going to happen is you're going to feel like you're going backwards. I'm just speaking from experience and from a lot of church history of guys I look up to who have said, I began seeking a deeper baptism in the spirit, a greater life of consecration. And at once I became aware of a host of wickedness inside of me. I had no idea it was resonant. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, God is actually doing exactly what you're asking. He's bringing to the surface all these toxins that he wants to get out. Like some people, they go on those juice cleanses, whatever. And all of a sudden they get really sick. And it's not because they're not eating solid food, but all these 
toxins that have been living dormant in there, but they didn't realize they were even there, start coming to the surface and manifesting in symptoms. And they start getting breakouts and hives and all types of stuff, but it's actually their body on its way to greater healing. Now, what I'm not saying to do is self-initiate a process of unhealthy introspection where you're constantly looking inside of yourself, navel gazing, and trying to find out everything that's wrong with you. You'll become self-absorbed and your religion will be something less than Christianity. What I'm saying is that you pray the prayer David prayed in Psalm 139, God search me and know me and point out any way that offends me. And when he does, you say, God, give me the grace to deal with it. And when you're doing your daily Bible reading and God confronts you with something where your life is not living up to the standard of his word, you repent in the moment and say, God, give me grace to change, right? But it doesn't mean that we see those things, we turn a blind eye and we say, I just don't care because the grace of God is there to forgive me. That, that is a false understanding of yeah. grace. That is heretical. Paul says, Does, did the grace of God come so that sin may abound? He said, by no means. But it's so that we may say no to all forms of ungodliness and yes to righteousness. Sin shall no longer be your master. Righteousness is now your master. And so our cry should be, God, may I be given over. When you were in sin, you were given over to progressive levels of wickedness. And once you're in Christ, you should be given over to progressive levels of righteousness and progressive levels of sanctification. I should be able to look at one of you like any and be like, man, from last year to this year, man, your humility, your Christ-like character, your love for others, your servant's heart, your compassion, man, it's growing. You may not see it because you're in the frame, but I should be able to look at Bradley and say, man, I can see it from one degree to another. You're becoming more like Jesus. You know, I love working with Nico so much. I've heard so many people say this. Nico's the director of Ignite. I see Jesus in his eyes. There's so much kindness in his eyes. There's so much compassion. He carries so much authority. It's because I know he walks with the Lord. And so the Holy Spirit works sanctification in us. And the, the good news is that's not on us. It's not get on the religious hamster wheel and run as hard and fast as you can until you wear yourself out and never feel good enough of God's love. The whole time he's there encouraging you, telling you how much he loves you, how much he's already forgiven you. And yet he's working and desiring you to be more like his son. Christianity does not just forgive you and then leave you where you're at. It progressively changes you more and more and more. A lot of the Holy Spirit environments I'm in, I'm charismatic through and through. I believe in every gift of the Spirit, tongue talk and all that. I love it. But I don't like when we only focus on the gifts and we don't talk about the work of sanctification because then we're going to be a bunch of clanging symbols and, and loud gongs that don't represent the nature of Jesus. And so it's all of it. We want the full ministry of the Holy Spirit. We want his sanctifying power at work in our lives. There should be a noticeable difference when you walk into a Christian environment and a secular environment. When you walk into a church and you walk into a retail store, there should be a noticeable difference. Not just in the church staff, but in the person who calls on the name of the Lord. Not just in their outward behavior, but in their hearts and their motives. The way they're carrying themselves and the warmth of the environment. There should be a, in the desire for God, in the, the content of their conversation, in the media at their home, in the music that they listen to. There should be a noticeable, tangible difference because they're walking with Jesus. There should be in my life and more and more. And, and it's not all overnight. Again, it's progressive. It's God's grace is there to empower it. I love what, uh, again, to reference J.I. Packer, he said, John Piper was interviewing him and he said, we hear the command, walk in the power of the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He goes, what on earth does that mean? What does it actually mean to walk by the spirit? John Piper wakes up tomorrow morning, he rolls out of bed, and he has this exhortation. He has a command from the word of God, walk by the spirit. How do I do that? And he said, I do this. He goes, first, I say, I admit my need for God. I say today, God, I can do nothing that you've asked me to do apart from your grace at work in my life. So therefore, God, I admit that I need your grace. Please fill my life and give me the motive and the desire to walk after you. And then he goes, I go live as if it depends on me because he goes, it's going to be me walking out there doing the things, my body animating it, whatever, but I'm trusting that God has heard my prayer and he's now animating all of my actions. So I order my day. I order my habits. I think consciously about how I'm going to glorify God and whatever I'm doing, believing that God has heard my prayer that morning. And when I get to the end of the day and I look back and I reflect, I say, thank you, God. Thank you that whatever I did that was to his glory was empowered by his spirit. When I heard that, I was like, that's so practical. I love that. John Piper has a similar thing that he says he prays a little acronym he goes uh, through every time before he prays and it's not just, or preaches, and it's not just for preaching, it's for living. And he says it's aptat. It's very similar. He goes, admit your need and your dependence for God, that you can do nothing apart from him. John 15, 5, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need a revelation of nothing. Yeah. We tend to think I could do a little something without God. He said, you could do nothing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Nothing. I don't have, often I don't actually live with that revelation. I think I could kind of do some stuff. And then when I get in a pickle, I need God's help. Jesus said nothing. It's yeah, a good word. And, and that was a gracious word to, to admit first, admit. And then he goes, then I, uh, I pray. And then I trust a blood-bought promise. I find a promise in the word of God and I trust it that it's for me in that day and in that moment. I pray through that promise. And he goes, then I act. And same thing, then I thank God afterwards that he was with me, that he promised to uphold me and that he did that, that he stood by my side when I was doing that, regardless of how it feels. And that's not just for preaching. That's, oh, I'm going to sit one-on-one with somebody who doesn't know the Lord across the table from them. That's, oh, I'm going into a work environment that's hostile to the gospel and I have to represent Jesus well here, not just with my words, but with my lifestyle. That I ask God for his help. And then I act in accordance with the prayer that I've prayed. And then I thank him afterwards for the fact that he's been with me through that. This is, that's all number seven. Sanctification, it's progressive. Number eight, uh, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts to minister to the body of Christ. Um, Now these are not just, we tend to only elevate gifts that feel like they're really spectacular. Prophecy is like, how on earth did you know that? I mean, that's pretty cool, right? It's like, man, if all of a sudden I knew Isaac's social security number one, it'd be creepy, but it'd be like, wow, that would, like clearly God revealed that, you know, or said something that was going to happen tomorrow and then it happened. That would like, that's impressive. And it does give you a, and those are God given gifts. Or if I started speaking in some unknown tongue and Regan had the gift of interpretation, he tells you exactly what it meant. Man, we would be impressed. That would be amazing. And I'm not downplaying those gifts at all. I love them. But the, the list goes on to talk about things like administration and hospitality, which is the, yeah. like Madison has the gift of hospitality to host people well and to make them feel loved and cared for and to host parties and events and gatherings where people are going to feel honored and they've been cared for with intentionality. That's a spiritual gift. And a spiritual gift is not just something spectacular. It can even be something that may appear in other places in the world as a natural gifting, but it's a sanctified gift that's used to build others up and as members, Paul uses the, the analogy of body, of the human body. And you know that every organ or piece of your body could be called a member. So it's like a, a thumb is a member, a pinky toe is a member, my liver is a member of my body. So you have some type of function. And what you do, Christ is the head who gives all the lordship, all the governing power to everything that happens in his body. And what you're doing is you're carrying out your act of service. It's as if Jesus is in the room yeah. with the gift of hospitality. It's as if Jesus is in the room, if you have the gift of teaching a true teacher, that is if Jesus is in the room instructing us in how to walk after him. If you have the gift of administration, it's like, man, the leadership of Jesus is on the scene, right? You have the gift of encouragement. It's like as if Jesus from the head down through that vessel is encouraging you in your race. Barnabas was called a son of encouragement, right? And we, so it's, Natural gifts, even taking the point, how, what makes something a spiritual gift is not how spectacular or how common it is. It's the level to which it edified the body yes. and made people aware that Jesus was in their midst through his many-membered body. Wow. And to the extent that it's not used to edify, and edify means to make people love, be more devoted to, be more cared for by, be more comforted, encouraged in Christ, to basically mediate the presence of Jesus, it's not a spiritual gift. So even the spectacular can be taken out the realm, outside the realm of what it's intended for if it's not being used to edify the body. Does that make sense? And if you're in Christ, every one of you has a spiritual gift. And I, 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 there's tests out there. I'm not knocking those. You want to know the best way, in my opinion, to discover your spiritual gifts? Serve hard out of love yes, yes. and genuinely desire to benefit those you're in community with. And the things that God has placed inside of you will rise to the surface and others will call those out. If you don't start by asking, what's my gift? But you start by asking, how can I most serve those that I'm in community with out of a posture of love? What God has placed inside of you will come to the surface and it will become obvious to those around you. And a great gift is also realizing what you're not gifted to do. And then you don't really have to give your time and attention. You can just say, man, with all the strength that God supplies, I'm going to do this to the best of my ability so that people feel the ministry of Jesus when we come together. We need everybody functioning, right? The whole body's not a mouth. The whole body's not a brain. The whole body's not just hands. It's not just feet. It's not just a heart. We need everybody functioning together, figuring out how to serve one another 
in love so that Jesus can be honored and glorified yeah. in our midst. That's good, bro. Okay? Number nine is that the Holy Spirit empowers the mission of the church. The thesis statement of the book of Acts is that when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the whole trail of the narrative of the book of Acts follows that thesis statement, which Jesus gave himself before he ascended back to the Father and poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The disciples are gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem. Just like Jesus said, the Spirit's poured out. Peter proclaims the gospel. Men are cut to the heart. I could go through the whole sequence of everything I've said to this point. They become aware that God is real, that God's in their midst. They're convicted of sin. What must we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All those things we were talking about. 3,000 people get added to the church in a single day. They're regenerated. They're joined physically to Christ by the Spirit of God. This gets me excited. This is same God. Different time of history, same God. It's good, bro. And then persecution breaks out. And so non-apostles, most of the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. I love this. Shows the power of the church. Because of persecution breaks out after Stephen is martyred, Acts chapter 7, they're spread by persecution. It says they preach the gospel or they gossip the gospel is what the original language most directly means. They gossip the gospel wherever they went. <laughs> And that was the next line of the story. They went to Judea and even to Samaria. And then the last chapter, I think it's even the last two verses of the book of Acts, says that Paul is imprisoned in the capital city of the pagan world. But it said that daily people would come visit him. And he preached the gospel with all boldness. And to anybody who would come to him, he would proclaim the kingdom of God. And it's like the invitation saying, the mission of the church is alive and well. Here's one of Christ's ambassadors in chains. But the mission goes on unhindered because the spirit of God is animating the church. And then 2,000 years later, it's Catherine is in Mexico, you know, just loving people for Jesus, probably using the grace she has for kids to just get down on their level. It's Lily hearing, oh, chaos is breaking out in Ukraine. She gets on a flight within like two weeks. It's Regan going up to App State saying there's some probably drugged out hippie kids who don't know Jesus. I'm going to go tell them. Where there's an authentic expression of the Spirit of God, our hearts will be turned outward to say that this truth must continue to be proclaimed so that people can encounter this God who dwells inside of me. The Holy Spirit empowers mission. And where we're not focused on mission, we are underplaying one of the favorite topics of the Holy Spirit which is not just to make large church services so that we look cool, but so that Jesus can have his full reward, so that Jesus can look glorious in the eyes of an unbelieving world. The Holy Spirit loves mission. It's why he's come. Number 10, the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. I already said this somewhat, but the subject of fascination of the Holy Spirit, the floodlight ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. Jesus said himself when he comes, John 16, 14, he will speak of what I give to him and he will glorify me. That's a thesis statement for the Holy Spirit. And that's what he does in mission. That's what he does in sanctification. That's what he does in giving gifts to the body of Christ. That's what he does in convicting men of sin and all of it. He's making much of Jesus and he's glorifying Christ. So when I'm in an environment that's making much of the Holy Spirit, I want to see the way that the much of the Holy Spirit is pointing back to Jesus Christ, the subject of fascination. Yes. That's not just about spiritual experiences. And I, again, I'm open to all of it, if it's truly the move of God. But I love Jonathan Edwards' test. He'd have people fall out in trances while he was preaching. He was a cessationist. It's crazy. He probably had more authentic encounters with God while not having a paper doctrine of it than people who claim to believe all this stuff but never experienced it. But he, he wanted to know one thing. He wouldn't write it off, even though he didn't have a paper doctrine for it. He said, it might be God, it might not. Let's interview them when they come back. And let's see, do they love Jesus more? Are they more devoted to Jesus? Wow, Are they yes. walking more closely with Jesus? Is there a fresh conviction of sin? Did it take them back to Jesus? And so the Holy Spirit loves to glorify Jesus. When we're in environments where the Holy Spirit is flowing, Jesus is gonna be made much of. Okay, and through glorifying Jesus, Jesus glorifies the Son because he's the only way, or glorifies the Father because he's the only way back to the Father. So those are 10 things that the Holy Spirit does. I'm just going to say them without comment one more time in case you missed them. Number one, the Holy Spirit 
makes us aware of the reality of God that's presence. Number two is that the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, which is the natural response when we get into the presence of a holy God. Number three, the Holy Spirit works repentance in our hearts, which causes us to turn from the sin that we recognize in the moment of being aware of the reality of God from that ungodliness towards God himself. Number four is that the Holy Spirit draws our hearts to Christ in faith, which is Jesus, the object of our faith, the person, the work uh, of Jesus and who he is. Number five, the Holy Spirit works regeneration. He makes us new creations. There's something different. My appetite is not the same as it once was. My desires are now for things I never cared about. My feeling towards sin is now different than it ever was before I met Jesus. Number six, the Holy Spirit seals us, assures us, and bears witness. When we're down, the Holy Spirit says it's true. The Holy Spirit says it's real. He's real. He can be trusted. Number seven, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Number eight, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts to minister to the body of Christ. Number nine, the Holy Spirit empowers the mission of the church. And number 10, the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. So I'm going to give you guys an activation in just one uh, second, which we're going to do all together in the room or by ourselves, but before you leave. But I want to give you five ways when you leave here tonight to seek more of the Holy Spirit in your lives. Five practical ways to seek more of the Holy Spirit. The first three are found in the Beatitudes, which are the blessed are statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And the first two are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. After he talks about meekness, uh, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Your starting point in seeking the more of the Holy Spirit is not trying to impress God. It's actually debasing yourself. It's realizing I'm not called to just pull myself up by my bootstraps, but to actually realize my total impotence. It's Abraham saying, I'm as good as dead physically. I'm past childbearing years. But God, if you've given the promise, I know that you can do it. But I'm going to face reality. It's, if it's, we're talking about revival on a campus, God, I've stood on that sidewalk enough times and been rejected by enough people to know that revival is not going to come through my wittiness. Yeah. Revival is not going to come through my Bible knowledge. Revival is going to come through a move of your spirit. Yes. In my own personal life, it's like, man, in a season of seeking greater humility, it's like, man, it seems like the harder I try to become more humble in my attitude, the more aware of pride I am at yes. work in my body. Right. I can't change this. God, I'm so desperate for you to work Christ-likeness inside of me. It's at starting where you're actually at. That's poverty of spirit and realizing you can't do it on your own. Blessed are those who mourn. That means you move to a place of repentance and say, God, but I so want. God, I don't love you the way that I should love you. I'm commanded, commanded, not suggested, commanded that I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. My love for you is so weak, God. But I want to love you the way that I'm supposed to love you. We can actually start there, guys. I'm so encouraged that the Beatitudes didn't start with blessed are the perfect. But no, blessed are those who recognize their neediness for God and those who are concerned enough over it to actually move to the place of prayer. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that they see what's available in God. Holiness is not just the absence of sin. It's being full of God. And so it's not just I want to be a whitewashed room with no bad stuff in my life. And I just got to perfectly make sure that nothing bad ever enters the walls of my life. No, I want to be full of God. Yeah. Holiness is sanctified, set apart to God, filled with him. That's the positive aspect with it. And that's where the love, the peace, the joy, the righteousness comes. And we start bubbling up into this expression of being holy is the greatest way to happiness. You know where the happiest place on earth is? Well, in the universe, wherever you want to say it, heaven. And you know what heaven is full of? The holiness of God. Yeah. You know what there's none of in heaven? Tears, sickness, death, or mourning. And it's the place where the living creatures never stop saying, holy, yeah. holy, holy. But we think God is a killjoy. And the more holy we become, the more boring we become. No, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Yeah. That says the real pleasure is out there in the world. No, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so what God is trying to work in us is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And, and we realize that the only way that's going to happen is through a work of the Holy Spirit. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's starting where we're actually at. And if we don't have a realization of our need... If we start praying more Holy Spirit, he's going to do it in us, okay? Number two is, and also that word blessed literally translates to happy. So it's happy are those who recognize their need for God. Happy are those who mourn, which sounds like a paradox, and it is. And happy are those 
who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Start in those places. Number two is lay hold of scriptural promises. A great one would be 11.13, or sorry, Luke 11.13, where Jesus, after talking about how many of you uh, earthly fathers, if your son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a scorpion instead. He goes, if you, though you're an evil generation, know how to give good gifts to your children. He doesn't just say how much more will the, the father give you anything. He says, how much more will he give the spirit in Luke 11.13 to those who ask? So what I want to do is come before the Father and say, I know you're perfect. And I have a scriptural promise in Luke eleven thirteen that you delight to give the Spirit to those who ask, Father, I ask for the Holy Spirit. And now it's like I have something to lay hold of. I have something I can sink my teeth into. I have something that's more sure than just my desire, my wanting after something. I have God's word, which is a promise that I can take to the bank and believe is true. And there's many other promises just like that. Um, number three would be read Christian history and pray do it again Lord nothing will make you want a move of the spirit more than reading the biographies of godly men and women who have gone before you and I'm going to say mostly men who are dead and with the Lord because we know the trail of their life after they were gone so like get into some biographies of people like Hudson Taylor and Elizabeth Elliot and so the famous missionaries and C.T. Studd and go into the early church fathers and these guys and find out about the Robert Murray McShine and Billy Graham, whoever, and, and read about their lives and the walk that is possible with God. And let it work in you a holy provoking unto why not me? If that, it's not, I'm not saying a jealousy about what God did through their life in terms of like the outcome and how they were remembered, but like, God, if it's possible to know you the way that person knew you, and I don't currently know you, help, like do something. It works desire in me when I read revival histories about, you know, Evan Roberts just crying out, bend me, oh God. And what he was saying was like, surrender my whole will, God. Like as possible as it is for a man to be surrendered to your will, God, bend me. And then all of a sudden in a moment, he felt God bent him. Like, I don't even know what that means, but revival history says that in a single year, 100,000 people came to know Jesus as a result of, and me, oh God, we can hear those words and not know what the reality is like until all of a sudden you can get up and say, he bet me, I'm his. I don't want to live with Christian language. I want to yeah, have stories yeah, yeah. of what God actually did in my life and in my generation. It's moving from unreality which is there's a huge gap between what's possible and where I'm actually living into the substance of the actual thing promised. And those blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger, starts with recognizing the gaps. You don't have to be discouraged by it, but it has to move you to holy unction where you actually seek it, where you're like, God's done this before. I love in James where it says, Elijah was every bit of man, I'm paraphrasing, as we are. He's made of the same stock. As we are, he's flesh and blood, just like us. But it said when he prayed, God shut up the heavens for three years. Man, I grilled for my daughter's birthday party in like pouring out rain yesterday. Man, what if I had the prayer life of Elijah, you know? Like 15 minutes, please, God. Like three years, God shut up the heavens. And we know what that's an invitation to is not to make you feel small in your Christian walk and say, that's possible. Yeah. yeah. Paul stayed long in Ephesus and preached the gospel. And because the power was working mightily through him, millions of dollars of witchcraft paraphernalia were burned in the, city, the center of the city. A whole riot broke out because the idol industry said, this guy is destroying our economy. Nobody wants to worship the idols anymore. And we make our money off of making idols that people buy. And they filled a stadium in revolt against how the gospel was shaking the power structures in their system. That should provoke you to say, what on earth would that look like? Yeah. What if the people, the drug dealers in Charlotte, the, the pornography makers, whatever, were so ticked off at revival that they went and filled a football stadium and said, get rid of those guys. They're messing up our world. And it's like, no, we're actually putting it right side up yeah. because the spirit of God is so evidently at work. What if all the casinos, I love Corey Russell and Billy Humphreys talk about this. If revival so hit Las Vegas that all the casinos just shut down because the owners were so stricken with the presence of God. Strip clubs and casinos shut down because there's been such a move of God in Vegas. We need a picture. We're content with so little. Me too. 
I have to mourn the fact that I don't even want it as much as I should. It's Nico's prayer. God, we really, really want revival. And if we don't want revival, make us want revival. That's blessed are the poor in spirit. That's blessed are those who mourn. It's not, I'm just so glad I'm going to heaven. Like, praise God. Hudson Taylor left a church full of a thousand people. He walked out on Brighton Beach in the UK and he said, I wept there, not able to stand in a congregation of a thousand people rejoicing in their salvation, knowing that there were millions in China who had never heard the name of Jesus. It's the more, I want to invite you to pray as we focus on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's all for the purpose of saying, more God. Not just for my sake, but for the sake of everything Jesus came for. And for the reason that the Holy Spirit was poured out so that we could do the humanly impossible. And that's available. Read Christian history. I want to encourage you. Get some revival books. Read. Listen to podcasts. Whatever. YouTube. It doesn't matter. Uh, Number four. Meditate upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If the focal point of the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ, then the more you give yourself to scriptural contemplation and meditation on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, it's in those moments that the Holy Spirit can come on you and illuminate your heart to who Jesus is. It's not just going to be like, it may happen. I mean, I don't want to limit what the Holy Spirit's doing. More often than not, it's not going to be why you're just driving if you haven't authentically been seeking Jesus and it's just going to come on you like a dive bomb. It's going to be in the intentional pursuit of a closer walk with Jesus that the Holy Spirit is going to interrupt what's your otherwise normal walk with Jesus and meet you in that place. It's D.L. Moody saying, man, for months, and this guy was already had the biggest uh, Sunday school class, 1,500 people in his Sunday school class in Chicago, the biggest in the city of Chicago. And two little old ladies were sitting on the front row uh, when he would preach. And they were always praying for him. One day he asked, what are you praying for? They said, we're praying for you. He goes, don't pray for me. Pray for all the lost and unconverted souls. And then he finally said, why are you praying for me? He was so irritated because they just kept at it. He said, we're praying for you to have a greater baptism in the Holy Spirit. And he goes, I was so irritated by their prayers. I thought I already had it. But then he goes, I realized there was more. So I started praying with these old women that God would baptize me. He goes, I was so just agonizing that God would touch me with more of his spirit. And he said, this went on for months. And he goes, then one day I was walking in the streets of New York City and this impression of the Holy Spirit came on me. He goes, I found an office that I could rent for the afternoon. And he goes, such a, like the power of God was flowing through him so powerfully. He had to say, God, take your hand off me or I'll die. focus on the work of Jesus. And it's like, man, there's promises like Romans 5, 5, the Holy Spirit sheds abroad. That means utterly and profusely fills the heart with the love of God. It's not just like a t-shirt, Jesus loves you. It's all that something moments like, oh my God, Jesus loves me. <laughs> yeah. As an utter profusion of the love of God that's been flowing between the members of the Trinity throughout all of eternity goes, <laughs> And fills you. That was Charles Wesley, who was like a halfway to Christian, working as hard as he could with zero fruit in his life to show for it. Is meditating on the work and the person of Jesus as the the preface to Martin Luther's commentary to Romans 1 is being read. And as he's meditating on the person and the work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit dive bombs on him and he changes two continents. People would just gather in fields, five, 10,000 people hear the gospel preached and fall into the conviction of God. It's not about the big gatherings. It's not what I'm trying to get at, but it's like, what was he doing when that happened? He was seeking Jesus. He was meditating on the person and the work of Jesus. Give yourself to the focus. Man, just get the cross in front of you. Just be thinking about, man, what, what more is going to, like Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? If he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, will he not give us everything? Because he already gave the greatest thing. There's nothing more precious than Jesus. And the thought process is if, if the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love, then we freely possess everything. And it's like, as you're meditating on that, will the love of God not begin to pour into your hearts? It's not just seeking tingling sensations in a service and saying, ah, oh, it's not for me, it's not real. It's a conscious effort to move in the direction of God. 
But at some point, his divine grace can come into what I'm saying is at some point, when we act as if our human effort, John Piper says it this way, is, is essential. Human effort is essential, but not decisive. Believing that a work of God can happen in our lives as we're genuinely pursuing him and intersect us and meet us at that moment, it could change everything. To know that that's even possible. The last one is ask for grace. I've already said this, but help and empowerment to obey the, the recorded, or sorry, the revealed commands of Jesus. Thank God for how he's helped you, uh, which I already hit on earlier. But sometimes when we're trying to figure out walking with the spirit, we're like trying to figure out God's mysterious will for our lives. And we want to be carried around just doing things that we didn't plan to do during our day. And God can definitely do that. He did that with Philip and, and the eunuch. But if we don't care about what he's already revealed in his word, and we're trying to walk in step with the spirit who inspired the word, we're off track. Like we're, the, the Holy Spirit does not make people flaky. Right, right. The Holy Spirit makes people want to obey Jesus. Yeah. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Yeah. You're like, that's legalism. It's like, that's Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Through whom grace and truth has come in John's prologue. And in the same book, John 15, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And so as you're seeking more of the Holy Spirit, ask for grace to re obey Jesus' revealed commands and start there. And so I want to, as an activation, I just, I couldn't remember the, any of the specific ones, but I just know for some reason, whenever I have meditated on Ephesians 3, yes. 14 through 19, like, there's just been like cool stuff that's happened. Like I don't want to like just have God has interrupted me in those moments often when I'm just like, and I looked back, I was like, Oh man, it was that Ephesians three thing again, where it talks about being strengthened in your inner man by the power of the Holy spirit to be able to grasp together with all God's people what is the height and the depth and the width and the length of God's love. So here's what I want to do. I'll, everyone just close your eyes. We're going to go into kind of a meditative prayer time. I'm going to read it really slow a couple times. And I want you to take what I'm reading, first hear it, and then I want you to start praying it back to God and receiving it and asking him for more of it. This is Ephesians 3, if you want to do this on your own time later. This is Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I'm gonna read this again really slow. And then if you wanna just stay in the posture of prayer, we'll have some quiet time. If you've got a Bible or device, you can pull it out and just turn verses over in your mind, your heart. But there's something as I'm reading that just feels like it's highlighted to you or a phrase from this passage. I just want you to grab hold of it by faith and just begin to pray, God, strengthen me in my inner being. I'm so tired. Or maybe it's God, fill me with the fullness of who you are. God, give me a revelation of your love. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people 
to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I felt a sense just as I was reading it one more time. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. So Father, we say thank you for sending your son Thank you for giving to your son the promised Holy Spirit who he has sent to his church. We thank you for the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. For making us aware of your reality, for making us aware of our need for you, for joining us to Christ and making us new creations. Thank you for beginning a good work in us of sanctification, and for being faithful to complete it, to carry it through to its completion. Thank you for the grace you give us every day, the power to change. Thank you for the holy desires and appetites that you work inside of us. Thank you for the gifts that you've given every person in this room to be able to serve others in love. Thank you for the witness of the church. If it were not for the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the mission of the church, none of us would know Jesus. So we thank you for how the borders of the gospel continue to spread until every tribe, nation, tongue, and people has entered into your kingdom. Thank you for giving us a role to play that you're the same God we read about in history. The times may have changed, the wardrobe may have changed, but you remain the same God yeah. yesterday, today, and forevermore. So the same way you moved then, God, you can do it now. The same way you've moved in these people's lives, Lord, you can do it in our lives. And so with fresh faith, we say, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Do it again, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the way you make Jesus appear wonderful before our eyes. Thank you for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know you more. God, we confess our need for more of you. Thank you for everything that's true of us because we are in Jesus. Thank you for everything that's true of us because of our positional relationship to Jesus Christ. Give us a greater experience and understanding of those things that are already true. Show us what is our inheritance in Christ. That we may not live like spiritual paupers when we, our Father is the God of the universe. Make us mighty in prayer, rooted and established in your love, full of faith and courage to live lives that honor, please, and glorify you in every way. And Holy Spirit, come minister on this campus and turn those who don't know you to Christ. That people may encounter the greatest act of love the world has yes. ever seen. We yes. can't even conceive the price you paid yes. by you, sending Jesus. your perfect son, Thank you, Jesus. the spotless lamb, to bear our sins and our punishment upon the cross. We say thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. We exalt your name, great God. Thank you. We ask that you'd be enthroned on the praises of your people. We ask that our hearts would be drawn out to you, that we would want to know you more. Holy Spirit, magnetize us to more of Jesus. You are the great magnet. You draw us to Christ the Son and God the Father. Lord, we are asking 
that you would draw us more and more into love with God. We don't just want spectacular experiences. We want living, vibrant relationship with you. Yes, yes. If there's more of you available, we want it. We don't care what people call it. Baptism in the Spirit, second blessing. All I know is that if there's more of you, I want it. We just say if there's more of you, Holy Spirit, there's more of your presence, Lord Jesus. We say we want it in our midst. We want it when we gather. We want it in our times of prayer and communion with you. We ask that you would focus our lives upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we could truly say with no unreality in us, I have one passion, one thing that I live for. One treasure that has caught my gaze. One beauty that has won my affection. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's only possible through your working Holy Spirit. We are a distracted, diverted, divided people. But we ask that you would focus us on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus would be made much of in our lives. Give us the real fruit of a spirit-filled life. That in all manners of speech, action, and desire, Christ would be made much of. That Jesus would be revealed in and through our lives as the supremely worthy one. May the testimony of our lives be Jesus is worthy. And to the extent that we don't feel that, make us feel that, God. God, we love you. We need you. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name.